0: Thank okay. you. Yes, welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. Paul Roach with you here. Welcome you to the show and into my living room as the East Coast population continues its stint in the sin bin. Similarly confined, but just as ready to tuck into the meeting sporting issues of the day is the rest of the team. First up, it's David Gill. G'day, Bear.
1: G'day, Roachie. Uh
0: Next up, Simon Johnson. G'day, Jono. How are you?
2: Always good to be with you, Roachy.
0: Indeed, and last but not least, uh, although he is in Melbourne, is Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles.
3: Oh, that was low. I always got to, well. Thanks for asking.
0: Always got to get in that little jab. Ha ha. All right, coming up in the show, the road out of this crazy, confined life that many of us are living is vaccines. We look at how sports entities are planning for the great coming out and talk to an employment lawyer about what employers can and can't insist on and how that impacts on sport. Also, who really really won the Olympics, trans-Tasman rugby skirmishes, Aussie rules in Tasmania, and Lord Beefy's new job. Of course, we'll wrap up the show with red card, yellow card, where we point the finger at all those questionable off-field behaviours across the sporting world. Use the hashtag RCYC if you see one to let us know. And speaking of the socials, get us on Twitter at 4andagainst, underscore, on Insta, against. Uh, and old-fashioned way, email forandagainst at hotmail.com. Alrighty, let's get into the next episode of For and Against. As we in Australia creep glacially to the magic vaccination mark of 70 to 80%, which... Which one is it, guys? That's a, that's a big margin for error there. Um, sporting clubs, codes, facilities, players and spectators are starting to grapple with how it's all going to work when we let back out to play. And the big question is, to what extent, if any, will people need to be vaccinated to be part of the fun? And is, as is often the case, and certainly in the case here, with some countries' vaccination rates more than double our own, it's instructive to look overseas as to what other countries are doing or have done to manage... Uh, bringing people back out to play.
2: Instructive and um, certainly makes us pretty jealous, doesn't it? When we see EPL, Premier League games with full capacity, we just saw Wimbledon with pretty much full crowds. I mean, I think with Wimbledon, it was interesting, wasn't it? They had a, a vaccine passport system, so you had to show that you had had your double jab, and if you hadn't, you had to show a negative test. They have those lateral flow tests. So that seems to be the way that some of the overseas sports are dealing with things.
4: You
3: know, the New Orleans Saints doing the same thing. Mm. They have just insisted that everyone that wants to come into the Superdome, you know, it's it's indoors, the roof doesn't open, everyone who comes in has to be vaccinated. Being the US, I'm expecting a lawsuit any day now.
0: <laughs> and indeed, we're just starting to hear word of some of the uh, local leagues and clubs talking about what may or may not be required. Um, but look, rather than us speculate, joining us now to explore the, that sometimes fraught employer and employee relationship within sport and what the need for a needle might mean for sport itself is Jack DeFleming, partner at leading law firm Cause Chambers Westgarth, who specialises in employment and labour law, and he joins us now from his lounge room. Jack, welcome to the show.
4: Oh, thank you very much, Paul.
0: Good of you to join us. Now, Jack, first up, let's, let's talk big picture. So is there any question these days as to whether an athlete is actually an employee? So are footy players an employee of their clubs or, or codes like any worker like you and I? Uh, and what about individual athletes such as tennis players or, or golfers?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. There, there is a question about this, but typically professional players and professional sport are all employees. So the footballers as we know them, the cricketers as we know them, they, they will be employees, um few professions, not jockeys, for example, not employees, and your individual athletes, um, no.
2: And Jack, tell us a little bit about, I mean, looking at um, the topic, which is obviously pretty controversial at the moment as to whether or not we can mandate vaccination, whether employers can... Uh, issue mandates that there is such a thing as compulsory code vaccination. Is that the case? Uh, And and what is the the position of law at the moment in Australia?
4: Yeah, it's a very difficult question. Everyone's grappling with it. But the short answer is it's legal. Um, And it's legal in the sense of not being illegal, (laughs) in the sense that you're allowed to do it. The real question comes down to is whether it's reasonable. So in employment law, we've got this concept, lawful and reasonable directions. An employee must comply with a lawful and reasonable direction. It's lawful because it's not unlawful. And then the question is whether it's reasonable. And in most cases, it will be. And that's certainly where things are heading. So it's quite clearly reasonable in some areas, um, healthcare, aged care, logistics, hospitality, retail. They're They're all very clearly reasonable directions. On the sporting field, bit bit greyer. But as I say, there is a very strong shift in sentiment, and you've seen it through the government's narrative, you've seen it through the regulator's narrative towards this being a more lawful and reasonable requirement. So, question,
3: It does reasonableness change based on where you live? So the example I gave before mm. about the Superdome in the States, you know, Louisiana is one of the lowest vaccinated states uh, in the US, you know, and and so uh, I think they might suggest that it's unreasonable. And some of our states that are running a bit behind like WA might suggest it's unreasonable. Is it possible that we could have different levels of reasonableness in different parts of the
4: country? less less so in Australia but I think your your question is really insightful because I think you see where America is at the moment partially for that very reason the position in states is so vastly different so the way that the NRL sorry NFL have gone about this issue could be different to say the way that the NRL might choose to go about it the NRL of course um sitting on the fence in spectacular fashion but partially because its playing group uh, from a culture that are quite hesitant about vaccination, and partially because they don't need to be the first mover here. Um, they they've just got to get get the job done for the next you know six weeks of the competition, and and I think things will play out for them.
1: Jack, we've been um, kind of asking from the perspective of is this something that's reasonable for an employer to do? But is there is there another dimension to this where you would look at it in terms of not whether it's reasonable for the employer to do it, to do it, but whether they actually have a duty to do it? And I'm thinking there in terms of occupational health and safety and, and, and that perspective.
4: Yeah, it, it, that's a, that's again, the probably underpinning driver of what's actually making it reasonable. So when the law in workplace safety is vague, but there are some clear factors that would make it a reasonable safety measure. And I identified those industries where it's plainly reasonable, aged care, health, hospitality, retail. Um, Once you establish that the spread of COVID-19 is a foreseeable safety risk and vaccination is a reasonable and effective control measure, then a direction that requires people to be vaccinated is really consistent with that. So it's not so much that I think the, the um, safety laws necessarily require it at that stage. That might be overstating the position, but certainly they make it a, a very um, clear, reasonable direction in many cases.
0: Jack, where does the power, the decision-making power lie here? Because in, in the intro just then, I, I did deliberately reference sporting clubs, codes, facilities, you know, brackets, stadia. Um, and even spectators. So perhaps amongst those three and any others I haven't mentioned, uh, who, who, where does power ultimately, ultimately reside to to make these calls as to who, who needs to be vaccinated and what can happen in order for that to that to happen?
4: So, so my little world is employment, and you know employment was originally born from the master servant relationship. So the power is from the employer requiring something that is reasonable and lawful and whilst it's morphed into, you know, contractual um, law, the, the power is that relationship. Mm. Um, for sporting stadium, it's quite different, though, and and it's a really good question because sporting stadium has the power to allow people on or not. Mm. And there's nothing unlawful about them excluding people so long as the reason they're excluding people is not unlawful. So let me give you a practical example. You, you, can't, you, you can't exclude people because of their race, because of their sex. They, these are discriminatory grounds. But there's nothing unlawful about excluding someone because they don't have a vac- vaccination. You know, so so the, the owners of these grounds, the, the owners of the stadium, the people who run them, and often the government in this case, mm-hmm. will be drawn into this should they decide to limit access to those stadiums for people who are vaccinated.
2: So it sounds like, Jack, um, the answer to the question is it is lawful or it's not unlawful, as you've said. I guess my, que- my next question would be the extent to which it's likely that any of these sporting codes or employers or organisations will take these measures. And is there an element of real politic in all of this in that ultimately the decision might be made more by governments when we're talking about these sports? A lot of these clubs and players are going to have to travel interstate in order to play and in order to travel interstate next year, one would expect that there might be such a thing as a vac- vaccination passport. Is that in reality how it's likely to play out, or do you think that some of these codes may be a little bit more upfront and actually mandate it themselves?
4: Well, let's face it. Like, you know, we, we look to the NRL to be progressive, don't we? <laughs> I, I think there is an opportunity for these clubs to take a leadership role, and some are dipping their toes in the water. Um, again, you know, I'm coming from an NRL Sydney focus. Um, they've run into the fundamental problem that uh, on uh, on a player servo, 82% of people didn't want it mandated. And Peter Volandes is a pretty clever, clever bloke. And he's read the room and said, I'm not going to go down that path because I don't need to. We'll have a summer or a sport ahead of us where these things will probably sort themselves out. Mm. Um, your point about uh, actually access to venues will, will, and, and access interstate is going to be a real factor which will drive outcomes. And, and I think indirectly it will assist those sporting clubs who don't themselves want to lead on this issue, it will assist them implement these type of changes because they'll, they'll say we have to. It's the only way it gets done. So, so what's also interesting about your question is the government itself isn't necessarily leading on this question. The, the federal government has left it to businesses to actually um, choose to mandate these, these things. They, they have the capacity to, they've chosen not to, um, and yet they've been heavily supportive of um, the obviously the, the vaccination program. So what you're seeing is you've got all these indirect pushes to vaccination, which together will lead to a situation where in order to participate in this particular sport in this particular state, you're going to need to be vaccinated. I I think that's probably how it will play out. Um, I'm actually expecting that there will be a sport that'll take the leadership role on this and and do so, you know, proudly as as one of the progressive um, influences on, on the community. Don't know which one that'll be, mind you.
1: <laughs> Jack, hypothetical question: It's it's your dream client. It's a high profile rugby league star. <laughs> <laughs> I'll <strong>. resign now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, right, that's, it's a bad dream. Jack. Jack, I can't get excited. But I want to. What, what argument are you going to make? Uh, look, I'll say
4: it, Ralph um,
1: th- This. Uh... <laughs>
4: Izzy, this is difficult, um, but unfortunately, unless there is a medical reason why you can't get vaccinated, your preference not to get vaccinated, um, if it is mandated, um, will not be sufficient. So I I mentioned Izzy obviously in jest, but there are parallels here where, you know, Israel Falal. um, um, for reasons stated to be freedom of speech, and and his religion though, which which is an important distinguishing feature, felt the need to make these comments which were contrary to a clear direction from his employer. And ultimately the two were inconsistent, and ultimately, you know, the employment relationship gave way. Um, And I can see that happening in that situation. Yeah, there's no compulsion to be vaccinated in the sense we're not going to pin you down and there's no assault and battery. And there's no compulsion to be employed. And ultimately, if the employer requires you to be vaccinated and you choose not to, for whatever reasons that they be, um, other than medical reasons, as I say, even if there was a strong religious reason, you'd have better grounds absent those reasons though um, the employment relationship will no longer continue that's going to be the outcome jack i I have a slightly different view about how this
3: is going to play out i'm hearing a lot of employers running around with the phrase strongly encourage yep we're going to strongly encourage people to get vaccinated and you know i think that will generally be interpreted as or well, you don't have to,
1: yeah.
3: and that'll be fine. And people will you know, run around and play sport you know, under the strongly encouraged direction until someone catches it from someone else and gets sick and says, all right, someone breached a, a duty of care here. Someone provided an unsafe working environment uh, or another player, I, I sue the other player for being um, irresponsible in some way. And then a sport is going to have to mandate or, or not?
0: Yep. Question mark.
4: <laughs> oh, I I see that as very real. We're we're not too far apart, Stephen. Um, ultimately, um, there is a risk for employers in this area. Um, the government recently announced that um, they would indemnify. Um, Uh, employers who did not impose mandatory vaccination from um, legal action by their staff, Um, but that doesn't actually um, mean it doesn't protect against legal action by, for example, customers. And um, that approach from the government itself has been criticized on the basis of having the unfortunate effect of um, permitting employees to maintain an unsafe workplace and an elevated risk to the community. And I I think if you see a a number of the employers come out, they they talk in this language that vaccinations are a tool to protect a person and and public health intervention is needed to protect communities. Um, And so you, you have many of the more progressive employers saying that in 2022, when everyone has access to the vaccination, that we are going to lead. And I think there will be, you know, sports really well placed to do that. Were it not for, I think the participants in many of the sports that I'm focusing on today are from a particular background that they've got a real aversion to it. So it's probably more difficult um, for those particular sports to take up, um, take up the running on this. But I think there will be many employers wanting to lead the way. Qantas in its typical fashion, of course, <laughs> underpinned by its industry. But it's it's often a leader in these type of things and, and it's um, come out, you know, and mandated it for its employees.
0: Mm. Jack, look, what I'm hearing is with all this uncertainty and we'll, uh, and what's ahead of us over the next six to 12 months, it can only be great for your practice as an employment lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
4: it's always interesting times as an employment lawyer and this is no different.
0: All right, uh, Jack, thanks very much for your time. We'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks, guys. Uh, Jack, Jack the Fleming there joining us, partner at Cause, uh, specialising in employment and labour law. Well, look, there you go. It will be very interesting to see how the remainder of... 2021 pans out but it can only work if everyone does their bit so please get those jabs into you because as they say at daycare no jab no play gold 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 it's the symbol of power the symbol of success the symbol of winning it's what we compete for how many silver and bronze medalists do you see flogging brekkie cereal hey exactly uh, but now with the Olympics over, so begins the justifications and qualifications over that final Olympic medal tally, with many interested parties doing their bit to screw the data in their favour. For example, despite not one but two tweets of ours aimed squarely at how wrong they had it, the New York Times Sports Department insisted on running this borderline communist, all medals are equal table, rather than then gold, then silver, then bronze. Uh, in the end, the US won both.
3: Yeah, they did, didn't they, Paul? (laughs) But but is that the the right measure? I mean, we talk about Australia doing very well and nothing makes an Australian jump on the Olympics bandwagon as much as winning gold medals. Yep. And we we won won more gold medals than any other Olympics except for Athens where we won the same. So equal top ever. It's amazing. And for a country our size...
0: Oh, a country our size. Punching above our weight, Steve. Absolutely. Absolutely, (laughs) my friend.
3: Or did we? so le- so i have been combing the you know the the investigative journalism all across the internet <laughs> and i have discovered some alternative metal oh, tables. some
0: alternative metal facts
3: so i would like to quickly quiz the the group here you might be privy to my secret notes to say can they tell me how australia did per capita roughly, where we landed on the medal table per capita.
0: Well, can I ask you a question first? How are you measuring this, Stephen? Are you taking this all medals are equal, or are you saying it's a gold, silver, bronze arrangement, or what's the weightings you're giving here? So in the spirit of the New York
3: Times, I think you mentioned, it's all metals. All medals. Because I, I, did, I didn't have the, the raw material to break it up. So let's just go with all medals for now.
2: I'm okay. going to guess we did we did well, but... We never do as well as New Zealand in these things. I reckon we'd be behind New Zealand.
0: They did okay. And look if it's if it's all medals, there's always some you know, smallish country that wins a, a bronze and a silver out of you know, with two hundred and fifty thousand people. So you know look with well, Fiji. Fiji won did they win both sevens or just the men's? I should know that. Anyway, so I reckon we've done okay, but nothing special.
3: Well, you, you are correct, and, and so I'm therefore suspicious about the cheat notes. Yes, we <laughs> came 14th in the uh, in the in the medals per capita. Uh, New Zealand did beat us; they came fifth. Uh, Fiji was eighth. That's a good get. Uh, the winning country, I suppose, was San Marino, oh, who gosh. won. Who uh, th- only won three medals, but. The people per medal
0: was 11,333. They won three medals. So, yeah, sorry, what did,
1: the... what did they win? Gold, silver, and bronze in Formula
0: One? Yes, yeah, right. I thought Sonia Marino was just a, a construct for the Italians to have two Formula One Grand Prix.
1: I, you know what? I
3: don't know. <laughs> I'll, look it up, I'll look it up before we finish the segment. Uh, Bermuda, who won a gold medal, uh, they came second. That was their only medal. We have 60, 62,000 people. Uh, it, was on, it was athletics, wasn't it? Didn't okay. they win? Um, Dave can help me with athletics. No, okay. Anyway, I should really do more research. I should stop can asking so many questions. Categories? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Let me let me ask you about climate change. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now we're getting into the real stuff. This is where it matters. This is where the Olympics are changing the planet because we start to recognize the CO2 emissions per medal.
0: Ooh, who
3: was the most environmentally friendly
0: medal winner, medal winning country at the Olympics?
2: Not China, I'm
0: guessing. Or the US and certainly not us. So what about what about New Zealand? New Zealand came about
1: Kenya Jamaica. Kenya Yeah,
0: actually good call.
3: I I like it. Kenya came ninth. Jamaica came third. Mm.
0: Excellent,
3: excellent Mm. work. Australia, by the way, came thirty eighth. The United States came seventy fifth. Well, I don't think you're going to get the number one. Number one is Granada. Granada. And I'm assuming that that was in the sailing.
1: So is there anything that measures for the relative value of different gold medals? Because all those metrics are great. But in all the years that I've been watching the Olympics, I've always felt like a gold medal in athletics, for example, is worth a lot more than a, a gold medal in kayaking or clay pigeon shooting or Greco-Roman wrestling or any of those other um, less rarefied kind of sports. So I'd be interested to know, is is there? It, it's not worth the day. <laughs> there,
3: there is not, my friend, but that is a very, very good idea. And I suspect that the you know, the four of us would have quite different weightings. You know, we, we've had Paul give his uh, endless diatribe about sports that shouldn't
0: be there. I suspect they would count for less. Is that right, Paul? Skateboarding, get rid of it. BMX, get rid of it. I have my five-year-old daughter who now clambers over me and she says she's doing sports climbing. Um, so there's a number of you know, ballroom. Isn't ballroom dancing coming in? Yeah, get rid of that. So, yeah, anyway, anything where the subject, subjectivity is involved in uh, working out who the winner is, should be gone. But, yeah, it's, it's a good point, what, Gilly. Shouldn't we be waiting it on television ratings? Oh, Steve-o. Jeepers. The true Riley comes out. Yeah, wow. <clears throat>
3: um, be well, swimming in athletics, sure, Television they? Olympics. Yeah, I you reckon you're right. And in Australia, swimming would count more than, say, uh, people watching in, you know, the African countries. They're
0: not going to rate swimming at all. So isn't the problem with that become self-fulfilling? Because we watch swimming because we win gold. And so if we win lots of gold, there's, that's the, 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 the multiple ratches up sort of – sort of, it becomes exponential. Chicken and the egg. Uh-huh. Well, and perhaps right
3: there is why that this is actually what happens in terms of, uh, of rating of medals, in terms of dollars, in terms of advertising revenue, because of how many people watch. And therefore, it's different in different countries.
2: If you, uh, if you want to talk dollars and medals, did you guys see how much some of the athletes actually earn for winning their gold medals? So there was another stat that I saw, and the Aussies don't measure up so well. So every Australian gold medalist got $20,000 per gold medal. Every US gold medalist got $50,000. This is all in Aussie
0: dollars. So what Subject to tax, I think I read, in the US.
2: No doubt, subject to tax. What country do you think paid the most? Of China, it, what was, it was it?
0: Uzbekistan or something
2: like that. It was Singapore, a million oh. bucks per oh. gold medal. So no one apparently won a gold medal this year, but a guy called Joseph Schooling, who won the 100-metre butterfly in Rio, got a million bucks. Hong Kong, they got 875 grand, and the Italians did really well, just under 300 grand, so that 100-metre runner... And the high
1: jumper each got three hundred grand for their gold medal. If you if you have it at your fingertips, what were, what were the Chinese athletes paid? <laughs> Chinese athletes paid
2: can I take yeah, that question were, on notice, <laughs> Chilbert? I can tell you their, their lives, lives were spared. And I'm going to jail. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But uh, the because... reason I ask is because I, it piqued my interest when I heard that the the Hong Kong athlete got eight hundred and seventy five thousand dollars for their gold medal. But as I understood it, according to Chinese media, that gold medal actually belonged to China. So I was just wondering Fair if point. any of the other Chinese athletes maybe um maybe asking for for an, an increase on whatever they do.
0: Well, that's a good point, Bear, because I think uh, in the final tally, um, the US got thirty nine medals. Sorry, thirty nine gold medals. And China got thirty-eight, leading at least according to most counts. But I think you were saying um, a little before we came on air that China has a different view on on who won that tally.
1: Yes, there were some adjustments, and I, I've spent a bit of time in China, so I've read quite a few newspapers in China. And reading a, a Chinese newspaper in the hotel before going to work each morning was always very, very entertaining. Um, it take, it's taking it's fake news on steroids, but I, I guess they saw saw it. You know, they were in the lead, thirty-nine to thirty-eight on the last day, and and the US sorry, I think they were 38, 37 on the last day, mm-hmm. and then the U.S. Came home, came home strong and and pit them on the last day getting a 39th gold medal. And the Chinese government, I guess, didn't like this, so they, they decided to, to add in gold medals earned by athletes from Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and Macau. And I think they just added another one um, for no reason, just because, I guess, 42 sounded better than 41. So officially... The United States was not ranked number one in the Olympics. Officially, it was China. So I just want to make that clear.
3: And I'd also just like to say, Dave, um, I hope you enjoyed that trip to China because that will be your (laughs) (laughs) life. That's right.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, good to see Australia coming sixth, uh, pretty much however you measure it, well, either either version of measuring, total total medals or, um, or the gold, silver, bronze. So... Not a bad haul for the Aussies. and it's only three more years till Paris. (music) To the shootout where we cover a whole lot of topics in slightly quicker fashion, we want to start with rugby. Rugby. We're kind of death-riding rugby a little bit here on the show accidentally, really, or maybe it just simply lends itself to it. Why can we not select our best available 15 or 22, whatever the number is, no matter where the players are in the world? What is Rugby Australia's problem? Now, of course, that's mostly a rhetorical questions. We know it's an attempt to keep the good players here for the betterment of the domestic game. Until, of course, it was decided that the offshore-based Matt Giddo was too important for that. And so a rule was created to accommodate he and others. And that rule apparently is up for change. But I, for one, don't care where they play. If they're in the best at Wallaby squad, get him in the best... Get him in the squad.
2: Rochi, look, I'm all for winning, And I'd love to win the Bledisloe Cup. It's been how many years? 19 years? Don't get me wrong. 20, I think. I like like the theory. I'm just not sure that if we had our best players, it would make one iota of difference. And I'm also a bit concerned about what precedent is going to set about holding on to the best players to play in Australia. I mean, the reality is we need to ensure a strong super rugby competition within Australia. We need to have the best players, or the vast majority of them, playing in Australia. And Why? If, well, because I, otherwise the game will die. I mean, we can't it's just have on the there. Well, it probably is, but it will—it'll be completely dead and buried, six feet under. If that's the case, we need to have a strong Super Rugby competition. If we don't have the best players playing
1: in Australia in a Super Rugby competition, then I think the game is gone. only priority for for the next three, four years. If they're doing well, then kids are going to play, and the grassroots will be strong. If they continue on the their current trajectory. Then the game in Australia is truly dead. So I sort of agree.
3: I think that we should let players go and play overseas, and they should be available to be picked. But I don't think that we'll actually end up picking because you know. Um, and hear me out on this. It takes a take a couple of steps, and I know a couple of you are a bit slower at keeping up. Hmm. What we're after is is if we can get some of the really expensive players off our books overseas. They're going to pick up lots of money playing over in Europe or up in Japan, and that's great. They might be good enough to bring back, but it's going to open up some opportunities for us. It actually opens up some money for Australian rugby to invest in the grassroots, which is exactly what they've been failing to do. Mm. They've been loading up all the money on Waratahs, you know, second stringers who are part of the squad.
0: You want to wrap them up in a special investment vehicle and get them off the balance sheet. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, no, because they'll just stick at the top. I want to go back to grassroots and I want to water the grass and have the game build itself up again.
0: But is your theory – are you saying that you want the more expensive – it actually benefits your, – your theory, in your theory, it's better that the, the expensive players go offshore because someone else pays the bills. Yep. Yeah, okay. And I
3: think that you'll find – people come and fill the vacuum. You know, I've, yeah. I'm yeah, i one of those people who was saying that uh, that when Serena Williams retired – women's tennis was in trouble and then Naomi Osaka comes along and then Ash Barty comes along and someone else will come along and they will step up and fill the void and it'll be the same in Australian rugby at the moment we're actually you know left with a a middle ground of really expensive players who aren't that good let them try and earn their money somewhere else and let's let's invest in the
0: system to find the best players and for me the parallel is is football bracket soccer right so the A-League is not the, is not the best league on the planet. It's a development league. Any half-decent Australian soccer player goes offshore. Any half-decent Australian soccer player that's offshore gets selected in our side because they're the best, They're one of the best players to, to pick in the side. The game here has survived that. The, players, the, the Aussie players offshore still get picked. They're arguably better for the experience. Now, as much as rugby lovers claim rugby is an international game, there's realistically still only a dozen, maybe two dozen at most countries that play it so that's you know that becomes a bit different to where football is although in football it's only a handful of countries where you really want to end up so surely the model that we've seen work in football can work for rugby where the best players go to where the best competitions are or other good other other quality competitions and we bring them back for for when it matters to play for the national side how is that how is it different Well, I mean, I think football, as in soccer in Australia, is you know rubbish. So I don't know that that's a good parallel at all. But it's got the grassroots. See, this is you were you were trying to water the grassroots for rugby. It's it's you know it's the biggest game by participation. Maybe Nepal competes with it as well. But it's not if not for lack of interest. Maybe it's the maybe it's the support structures that we lack in football. Maybe it's Mm. the the money gets poured into the into the into the, the code overseas. Maybe it's the fact that there's about 10 different sports that the average Australian athlete can pick from as opposed to one in most other countries.
1: If you look at examples of other countries, um, Europe, South Africa, New Zealand's a special case, but even New Zealand's going to feel this pressure, maybe not next year, but in five years' time, 10 years' time, they can in the same predicament. And if they want to continue to dominate the game like they have for the last 50 decades, uh, they're going to have to change as well.
0: Mm. All right. Look, we we could go on, but do do we want to quickly just talk about the uh, Trans Tasman politics? Uh, obviously, the Bledisloe uh, first two games were were held in New Zealand, and the third one was due to be held in Perth, which uh, disappeared in a puff of smoke. And so we've got an interesting little battle of wills going on across the Tasman.
2: Yeah, toys were thrown out, Richie, weren't they, mm. by Rugby Australia and Dave Rennie mm. uh, after the All Blacks refused to travel to Perth. Um, I wonder whether Dave Rennie might have been offering a little bit of cover for his players to cover up how badly they'd. They'd been outplayed in those games and to take some of the press heat. Um, there were claims of lack of respect from the New Zealanders that the Australians only found out about this via social media. But, look, guys, the, the reality is the only way we'll gain respect is to beat them on the field again. So I know the games have been rescheduled for Queensland now, so I think we just need to do our talking on the field and finally match up to the All Blacks.
3: Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) you know, it might have been a good thing that that match was cancelled, I reckon, but just saying,
0: Mm. isn't that terrible? How good is Queensland? Uh, So the AFL released the Carter report recently, a report into whether Tassie should have its own team. A a beautifully crafted document it was. It gave all the sides a little bit of what they wanted while requiring nothing be actually done by the commissioner of said report. Now that is management consulting. Um, so, Tassie, it's seemed for Tassie, do we care? Do we think it should be should happen? Do, does the AFL need to go out of its way to make it happen? Yeah, go on, steve as our Melbourne correspondent. Uh, of course they need to make it
3: happen. The question is, can they make it happen? So they, they did make a little more uh, headway than what a lot of people sort of originally credited that report as doing um, because what it did was it set the scene for... The, the boxes they needed to tick to get a Tassie team in the comp. Mm. And and essentially to get one in, the AFL commission has to agree on the on the bid. So that's really the, 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 the dollars and cents. And then 12 out of the 18 AFL clubs are, are going to need to sign off on the deal. And I reckon that second step is actually the tricky part because, you know, the, the, the questions in front of them are do you relocate a team or do you bring them in fresh i think they'll bring them in fresh as a 19th team and then you know you're gonna to have to argue oh do we want buys how are we gonna how are we gonna make that work
0: um, well it's, done, it's been done before like um, gold Coast and, and uh, the Giants came in at a at a similar time but there was a year or two we with 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 only one and not the other so you know having an uneven number can work, it's clunky, but it does work
3: Oh, I think it'll happen, and I think it will work because you know buys are happening all the time now in in all the comps anyway um and they're they're hosting a couple of uh semi finals um well that that gets gets us gets them going, proves their worth and then uh, then I think yeah, mid next year you're gonna see them announced and they'll start in you
1: know twenty four twenty five hmm. Couldn't they just cut one of the Melbourne teams? I mean, there, there are quite a few Melbourne teams, aren't there? That's outrageous. <laughs> Take that back, sir.
0: <laughs> you and what army bear? Look, I'm, I'm, uh, bear, bear and Jono, I know you sort of uh, fight for fashion correspondent. Um, I don't suppose you've seen a, their uniform, the, the Tassie team's proposed uniform. No, dude, well, is it uh, a Tassie?
2: Tassie De Tiger? what's going on?
0: Well, it's a bit of a silhouette of the stafe uh, on, the, on the chest with a, a T in the middle. Uh, big blazing and tea and I think it's mainly, is it mainly a green jersey rise with maybe a yellow state map and a, a red or an ochre kind of colour tea? It's a very weird yeah, combination. I, I think at the moment it's sort of sporting the same colours as the as the cricket team. But uh, I think oh, they've yeah. got time to turn that around. Get the let the marketing team at it. I certainly hope so. All right, we'll um, stand by and watch uh, look I think it's thin end of the wedge. If Tassie gets one, what's to stop Northern Territory, eh? If you build it, he will come, a voice whispered to Kevin Costner in 1989's Field of Dreams. Well, it it took 32 years, but that voice finally wafted into the e-holes of the right people at Major League Baseball and gave birth to one of the biggest non-finals match paydays for ticket scalpers uh, as they built a small capacity field in the cornfields. Steve, as I understand it, as a movie correspondent, right next to the original set for that film. Yeah, it was a few few
3: cases away because they, they, they didn't have the the right sort of uh, corn land where the, the film set was. But yeah, a couple of k's away, and they uh, they played this game between the Chicago White Sox and the New York Yankees, and it was the highest rating game for a regular for the regular season since two thousand and five.
0: Hmm. What does that tell you, if anything?
3: Wow, it you can take this one of two ways. You can say, wow, that's fantastic. Baseball is back, baby, and it's never gone anywhere. It is America's favorite pastime. Look how it draws on a gimmick game, or you can say this is the end. Seriously, <laughs> it takes a gimmick game to draw
0: a to draw a crowd. Has baseball jumped the shark? Maybe, maybe. Gilly, you've spent some time living in the states uh, a couple of years, uh, as I recall. You've you've labelled baseball. You've in- informed us. Knowledgeably, that baseball is a sound of summer in the US. What are your thoughts on uh, on this? Is it a gimmick, or was it just
1: an inevitability? Would, would this be a bad time to acknowledge that I have never seen? Sorry, no. <laughs> Stephen, is it, is it actually is it actually a good movie? Oh, Steve, Steve would love it.
3: <laughs> Steve did. <laughs> yes, it's a fa- fabulous movie. One of one of Kevin Costner's best. It's very very Americana. Um, look, I, I think the, the, the thing to think about, Paul, is, is is what happens to baseball a preview of what happens to cricket. You know, we've mm. already gone and tried to entertainise the game with the big bash and music between balls and gimmick, gimmick after gimmick. You know, if baseball
0: can't survive, will cricket follow suit um, in a similar way later? On that note, I was very disappointed, and I do sincerely mean very disappointed to see the success that the success that the hundred um, garnered in the UK quite recently. The numbers of people watching, the numbers of people attending, numbers that's got to be. From, oh, I was horrified that it was so successful, to be honest with you.
2: It's got to be a bit of a post-COVID thing, though. Though, isn't it? Everyone's been cooped up for twelve months, and uh, okay. it's the first big tournament that people can get out to and watch, as well as watching on TV. But yeah, it's done spectacularly well, hasn't
0: it? God, I hope you're right in that theory. It's a good one. I hope you're right. Well, look, while on cricket, I'm not really sure where you go with this one, but it it can't not get mentioned here on For and Against. Baron Botham of Ravenswood – I mean, how wrong does that sound for starters – has been made trade envoy to Australia. The British High Commissioner to Australia, whose name escapes me, said thus, Lord Botham's skill and experience, together with his market knowledge – developed during his time spent in australia throughout his career market knowledge in what will help us promote the exciting new opportunities for two-way trade and investment and of course the australia britain trade deal was the first of britain struck uh, post brexit so what do you make of that baron botham of, Tra- of ravenswood trade envoy to australia Curtis of his market knowledge developed during his time spent in australia
2: he knows a lot about food and wine, so I think he's going to do pretty well for the, the wine industry in Australia. He's uh, released a few of his own drops over the years, so I think that can't be a bad thing. I wonder if Warney gets the equivalent gig for the uh, for the oh, Aussies over to the UK. Surely course. there's got to be a bit of On the extra chow back.
1: Yeah, why not? <laughs> I think Lord, Lord Bothan is going to he, he's going to stimulate an Huge amount of trade, most of it imports of wine from Australia into Great Britain, is not really going to sell anything that says that... What, what what does Great Britain actually sell to Australia? What do we buy from Great Britain?
0: Well, there's those specialist lolly shops where you can buy crisps and you know things like that that the the expats crave. HP sauce it's kind of a joke. yeah, yeah, well, there's a start. So, so having great a quick for run Australia. through
3: the internet, it's optical, photo, technical, and medical apparatus, mm. electrical and electronic equipment. I can't actually think what the, the big British brands are in in those spaces.
0: Beverages, spirits, and vinegar. So maybe gin. If ever there was an argument for not doing research, that last twenty seconds was just it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> for medical technology. That would be right up Lord Botham's alley, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: So to speak. <laughs> oh, wow. Well. Look, I mean, let's leave that there before we get sued by somebody. Uh, well, that's the end of the shootout. Let's come back with red card, yellow card. Yes, the shootout where we love poking fun at sports people who have erred off the field of play and drag their indiscretions back into the spotlight, just like they don't want. Uh, Steve-O, kick us off. What do you got for us?
3: I have got the Olympics, and yes, I have got...
0: The Olympics. Gone big.
3: players. No, I'm going going footy players, as Ah. usual. Actually, I'm going rugby players, which is a bit unusual. Actually, I'm going rugby sevens players, which is even more unusual, and I'm coupling them with football or soccer players who are flying home with them on Japan Airlines and having a little bit too much to drink. So much so that Japan Airlines said... That all
0: the Olympians that followed needed a. Sh- <laughs> Great stuff. So um, a, a, a plethora of cards being handed out to various athletes there. That's a bulk Reminds shoe, me right? of school
3: days when uh, when the principal used to say, "Remember that you are representing your school." Mm. Alas, our Olympians have represented us poorly.
0: It's like that Year 9 Geography Commerce excursion where uh, 10 of the 90 <laughs> got punted home on the first night. Yes, yes, that kind of thing. They, some, they, never,
2: some never to return to school. Yeah, one
0: or two never come back today. <laughs> to that. G'day all those guys if they're listening. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Roz, this is a unique one because you haven't nominated one person. You're, you're blanket reds or yellows for so these athletes? Yellows, I presume. Blanket, red. blanket outrages, reds.
3: Outrageous. Red. Well, they do they, they, they had the privilege of leaving the country the, and then,
0: mm. yeah, and they've come back in disgrace. Really. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Gilly, what do you got, mate?
1: So I I, I was looking for something with an international flavour and I always like to go to, um, to English football. But I've got to say, like, I spent a bit of time reading through The Sun looking for something oh, scandalous God. and, and gossip-worthy. Wouldn't be and too hard. football players these days, they they way too well behaved. So I don't... I, or are they too serious about sport these days, but it's very difficult to find. So I have to go back to fashion. Uh, and this was Jack Grealish, who we um, nominated a few months ago for his um, limited vocabulary. And today I'm nominating him for a uh, fashion faux pas. And this was kind of a ap- light apricot-coloured uh, three-quarter length jeans tucked into his sports socks. Oh, my God. Not That's worth Not That's a good in. Good at all. Tucked in to his sports tucked socks. Tucked Yes, tucked in. The great thing about this article was that they kind of got into the fashion theme, and they went back and nominated um, the worst-dressed English footballers of the last 10 years. But quite scandalously, they awarded the culprits red or yellow. Outrageous.
3: Outrageous. If only we had some lawyers we knew.
0: That's right. (laughs) Gillian, I hope you've drafted letters. Uh, Jono, share with us your red card, yellow card mm. nomination
2: Yeah, Richie Look, we usually can rely pretty heavily on our rugby league comrades mm. To provide excellent fodder for red card, yellow card It's been pretty lean pickings though As um, as Dave mentioned Given that most teams and players are in COVID bubbles or in lockdown But never fear, I've found one And we do have a pretty good contender this month Bulldogs forward Adam Elliott was busted having a romantic entanglement with a female league player by the mm. name of Millie Boyle mm. in a Gold Coast restaurant toilet. That's just all class, isn't it? Um, Adam has been stood down by the Bulldogs. It turns out he has some previous form and it had told the club that he was off the booze. But Billy has actually come out in support of Adam and said that they were old friends and she said, "Look, all we did was have a kiss in the bathroom. It's been taken way out of context. We're both single, and we're mates from way back." Mm. When you so say, I think it was,"
0: when you say "Billy," I presume you mean Millie Boyle. Have I got Millie Boyle?
2: Um, but look, I, I was going to give it a red, but I, I think, given that uh, Millie came out in support, it's probably just a yellow, isn't it? it seems mm. like a. <laughs> I, I
0: think I think
3: Millie, Millie's comments get them off the hook completely. Possibly, yeah.
0: Well, I think ultimately it's his history with the booze, isn't it, and his need to stay off the booze, or, or something about the booze. It's not about the patch; it's about the booze.
2: It's his, it's his second or third strike, I think. So mm.
0: that's right. Mm. So we're going yellow, John. Yeah, I think yellow. All righty. So I too am going to just look before I get into my main nomination. I'm just going to sneak in a quick. Um, Mention uh, also Olympic related, Steve O, but it is actually the Olympics or at least their Twitter account. Who, the day after the men's Australian or you know, instantly after the men's Australian hockey team said, tweeted, the narrowest of defeats in the final, but an incredible campaign to be proud of for the at hockey ruse with a picture of the men's Australian men's team.
1: The oh Kokobaras,
0: exactly. Oh dear. So well done the official Olympics Twitter account. Um, but look, I want to nominate Jason Akermanis. Uh, look, I'm sure he's got a run here on red card, yellow card before, but it has been a little bit of a while. Uh, it's also been a little while since he's sort of had any meaningful publicity. But I'm I'm really keen to change that. He's been something of an entrepreneur since he retired. Hard to believe it, tick over uh, a decade ago. He's dipped in. He's dipped into the uh, foreign currency world. Apparently, fancied himself as a bit of a finance a financier financial player and now the next logical conclusion he's into cryptocurrency and recently launched a new australian cryptocurrency called zoo or such, such something like that uh which he expects to make in excess of six billion dollars and look i'm not I, I don't know a lot about crypto but it doesn't matter just listen to this it's simply a much better product than bitcoin Acker told the uh, news website uh, expecting it to rock the crypto world in coming months. The biggest problem in crypto, and this sounds very authoritative, we call them the triennial problem. You've got cost, speed. It could take four minutes or four hours to mine crypto, and then you've got scalability. Whereas my product solves that problem. Uh, so look, I think the, the nice little twist there is uh, the the business partner is um, is a gent that is mainly sort of travels within finance. Nigerian
2: chap, by any chance?
0: Look, not actually. <laughs> not the photo that I've seen um, but it's been described in this article that I that I struck upon this uh, as a notorious businessman uh, who was convicted of stock market manipulation in the 1990s and is now embroiled in a racehorse scandal from last year so well done Acker good good luck on that little escapade um, maybe it's a card in waiting but I, but I still want to give it a, a, a yellow stage just for a whole range of factors really but good on Jason Ackermanis uh, at least, I although I, I, I just, like point.
3: To, just like to point out that offering no financial advice of any kind of whatsoever, right. and you should consider your
0: own personal
4: circumstances before <laughs> investing in Jason Acrobatics.
0: And past shows are not not an indicator of future show uh, success or otherwise. Gilly, what were you, what were you saying,
1: mate? I was saying I, I think you should have called it Acomana coin rather than Zoocoin.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, anyway, good luck to Ackerman. It, right it is, it is, it is. The time has passed. And indeed, time has passed. It is now time to say farewell with the end of Red Card, Yellow Card. That brings an end to another exciting episode of For and Against. And so uh, we simply say fairly well uh, to you, Simon Johnson. Good on you, Jono.
2: See you, Richie.
0: Uh, Stephen Riley, goodbye to you. Thanks for joining us as always. See you, Paul. See you, everyone. And see you later, Dave Bear Gill. Thanks again for your company, mate. Until next week, mate. Indeed. And in t- until next time, don't forget, get us on Twitter at for and against underscore uh, Instagram for dot and dot against. And there's always the for and against at Hotmail email address if you want to get hold of us. So until next time, looking forward to your company. But yes, until then, bye for now.